0: Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the first two thirds of Romans 11 together this morning, verses 1 to 24, and then we'll take up the rest of the chapter uh, next time. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. We remember in chapters 9 and 10, Paul has been addressing this issue of what happens uh, to his kinsfolk, to ethnic Israel, and he is It dealt in chapter 9 with uh, God's sovereign choosing of a people, in chapter 10 of Israel's rejection of God and hardening of their hearts, and now he draws the whole thing together in chapter 11. So we read in verse 1 and following, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace." But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for our reading of it this morning. We're going to consider these words and the challenge that they have for us a little later, but before we do, we're going to come together in prayer. We're going to pray for our congregation, especially this morning, but we're also going to pray for the wider world. So, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are often reminded in your Word that you, like a loving Father, love to give good gifts to his children. And so, Lord God, this morning we come before you and we ask in order that we might receive from you not just blessing to make us feel good, but, Lord, understanding that you would have us go from this place living for Christ, loving Him, and serving Him. Lord God, we ask all this that you might be glorified. And so, we pray, our loving Heavenly Father, that you would bless us in your Word together as a family. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter in Romans, as we get really towards the latter stages of the book, asks one huge question. And it's a question that is very important for us to ask, I suspect, because we all know what the answer is, or know what the answer ought to be, and would be able to give that answer without thinking too much about it. The question is, has God failed? Now, we know the answer to that is, of course he hasn't failed. But why is that the answer? when it certainly looks in some ways like he has. And if it looks in some ways like he has in his word, then we can recognize certainly times in our lives where we've struggled with that thought, perhaps not daring to utter those words because we feel that in some way it's blasphemous to ask that question. We we can't ever uh, give a moment's thought to the fact that God might have failed his people. And yet we do struggle. It surfaces in lots of different ways in our lives, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't live as we ought to. We give in to temptation. Why do we do that? Because we believe in that moment that the thing that sin offers us is going to be better than what God has promised us if we withhold ourselves from that. We go through times of difficulty and loss, and we ask that question, how could God have allowed this to happen to so and so? Or to me, or my family, or our church, or whatever it might be. And in that moment, we're asking, why has God not given us what we deserve? We go through challenging times. And the way that we react reveals to us that we're asking this question Has God failed? We know the answer in our minds. We just. Don't feel it in that moment. And it leads to behavior and and to words. It leads to patterns of thought which are not honoring to God. And so it's right that we ask the question and we understand why the answer is, as Paul says twice in this passage, absolutely not. Failure is something that we all struggle with as individuals, isn't it? It's something that I certainly know in my life. One of the great frustrations I've had in my life is no matter how much I know something, no matter how much I've studied or revised, no matter how much I've prepared, when it comes to an exam, all of that kind of goes out the window. I'm hopeless when it comes to exams. Because everything that I've learned kind of evaporates, and I'm just left looking at the questions on the page thinking, I've got no idea. I know the answer to this, I just don't know what it is right now, and right now, when it comes to an exam, is really all that matters. Being able to say two weeks from now, of course, this is what the answer is, just won't cut it. That was the case in my, uh, in my driving test. I failed my driving test twice before I finally managed to pass it. And in both instances, I know exactly what I should have done. But for some reason, in the heat of the moment, it just didn't work out that way. I just couldn't do it. It was the same in countless exams. I had to sit at school or at university or whatever else it was. When push came to shove and I encountered problems, it just overwhelmed me in that moment. Mike Tyson has a great quote about this because we all experience this in some way at certain points in our lives, and he said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And from a boxer, you know exactly what he knows what he's talking about. You can go with the best strategy the world has ever devised, and yet in that moment when somebody thumps you, all of that goes and all you can think about is what's just happened. Is this what's happened to God? He's made big promises in the Old Testament, promises to his people that he'll be their God and they'll be his people that he'll preserve them and lead them and guide them and save them and be everything to them. And they'll be his and they'll have a glorious future together if they walk together. So has God promised more than he could deliver? And really when push has come to shove and Israel has disappointed him for the umpteenth time, he's just had enough and he's rejected them and he's found someone else who promises more the Gentiles. If, if they'll have me, then we'll just go on with them and we'll leave the Jews by the side of the road. Is that what's happening? Because it kind of looks like that's what's happening, doesn't it? And it's a big stress for the church at the time. Much of the New Testament is written to deal with this question of how do Jews and Gentiles get along together within the church when they've both been saved? Because, The Jews have got all of this history, all of this lineage, all of this understanding of the Scriptures and so on, and the Gentiles have none of that. They've sort of skipped to the front of the queue. And is that right? And and can they just get along, or is there two classes of Christian within the church? And Paul is dealing with all of that here, as he does elsewhere. Has God failed his first people and then adopted a second? It's an important question, and it's an important question for us to ask, for all that we know the answer is no, because it speaks to how we interact with God today. Because if God has failed a people in the past, if he has left them by the side of the road and moved on with someone brighter and better, he might do the same today. He might leave me by the side of the road. Maybe he'll be fed up with me at some point if I frustrate him too much. And so I can't have any confidence in my salvation because the Jews were so sure, and yet they missed it. And maybe I'm the same. It speaks to our relationship today, not just the church's internal struggles with what to do with Gentiles and Jews uh, and their being the people of God. Has God failed? Well, Paul answers emphatically, no by no means. Within the Greek language, there is no stronger way for Paul to say no here. This is the most emphatic language at his disposal. By no means. It's not possible, is what Paul was saying. God's people, he says, have been chosen by grace to point to God's goodness, and that is the same now as it was then in those Old Testament days. And it's the same now, 2,000 years on, as it was in Paul's day, and we see that in these first 10 verses. Has God failed? Paul says, of course he hasn't failed, because I'm here. I'm Jewish. I'm an Israelite. I have grown up with all of the baggage that all of my kinsmen have, and I have seen the truth of Christ. It has been revealed to me. I have been saved, so I know that God hasn't failed his people because I'm one of his people. And Paul knows that there are a great many Jews within the church of the first century. He knows that actually the vast majority of the church in those first decades uh, of the church's existence were Jewish men and women who've been called by Christ and have responded to Christ. And therefore, God hasn't failed. I know he hasn't. So what do we do with that? What do we do with a vast number of other Jewish men and women that don't seem to understand? How do we factor them into our thinking? Paul says, I know that God hasn't rejected us because God has foreknown us. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, as we've already touched on in the book of Romans, foreknew doesn't mean that God looking down through the mists of time sees that these people are the kind of people who will Call out to me for salvation so I'll save those people. And those other people, they're not those kind of folks. So we'll just leave them to their sin. That's not what for new means. For new is something active that God does. And Paul in chapter 8 has already walked us through that. And what Paul means here is what he meant in chapter 8. That those whom God knew ahead of time, predestined ahead of time, those he would save. And he goes on to illustrate that from the Old Testament. He says, remember that story of Elijah, when Elijah comes to this point where it seems like the whole of Israel is chasing after false idols, most notably Baal, who is a Canaanite uh, god, a, a weather god, really, because they live in a part of the world that is drastically affected by whether it rains or not. And so the people of Israel... Called out to Baal again and again and again throughout their history because they just needed it to rain. And during Elijah's life, this was particularly important. They they went through a terrible time uh, of drought. And Elijah's lamenting, he's sort of fleeing because he feels that he is literally the only faithful man in the whole of Israel. And he's been calling out for God to judge Israel and now Elijah's fearful that God is just going to wipe out everybody, and he's just going to be the last man alive in the land. He's realized just what he's been asking for, what the consequences of God's judgment are on a people who reject him. And what does God say to Elijah? Paul says, you're not the only one. You do not have universal knowledge of what's going on in the whole land of Israel. There are 7,000 people who haven't worshipped Baal. I have preserved them for myself. He's confronting Elijah with the truth that God is not just casting the the future of his people open to, to all of them and just saying, do what you want and we'll see who's left standing at the end. God isn't doing that. God is purposefully saving a people for himself, because what is at stake is the glory of God in the world. He's not going to leave that up to a sinful people, because if he does, they will all fail. They're sinful. That's what sin does. God says it's not the case. There is no need for fear here. Now, we can debate all we want about whether he means literally 7,000 and not one more or one less, or whether this is a sort of an idealized number to mean there is a huge number, a complete number of people in the land who I have saved for myself. And we could get into that another day. It's not the time for that today. But God has saved a vast number of people, and he calls them a remnant. The idea we have is almost like the stump of a tree. A huge amount of it has been cut down and taken away, but there is still something living sticking up out of the ground. It's not as big and as grand as what has gone, but nonetheless, it's where life is. That's what remnant language is in the Old Testament, and Paul was just drawing it right through into the new. There is a remnant today, because God isn't leaving the fate of his people to their own hands. That would be foolishness in the extreme. The fate of the Jewish people, the fate of the Gentile people, the fate of all people rests ultimately in God's hands. There is a remnant, and he says it is chosen by grace, not works, by the faithfulness of God, not hinging upon the faithful or faithlessness of his own people. God is saving a people to point to his own goodness by grace. And so there is no need to fear that God has failed because when we look out, we can't see things working the way we think they ought to be working. Just like Elijah. Just like Paul and his uh, friends in his day who just wonder, why on earth are all the Jews just wandering away from Christ when he is everything they've dreamt of? And it's the same for us today. It's the same for us in, in the literal sense, in that, that God is still saving Jewish men and women today and will continue to do so until Christ returns. And we want to give glory to God for that because he has been so faithful to them despite their hardness of heart. And it's the same for us today here in Ladywell. For all, that this is not some great Jewish stronghold in the western part of the world. This is still a place in the world where so many people who have hearts that are hardened to God live. They're all around us. And we sometimes look out and wonder, what on earth is God doing? We're we're going and we're sharing the gospel with our friends and our family, and all we hear back is, no, I'm not interested. No, I think you're nuts. No, that sounds so bigoted and hateful. We so rarely hear people repenting and coming to God in faith and asking for their salvation. What is God doing? Has God failed? Is this a time where God just isn't doing very much here? And the answer is, by no means. I have no idea how many people God has set apart in Ladywell, and in Livingston, and in West Lothian, and in Scotland, and the world for salvation, for his own good purposes. But I know that it's a number beyond counting, and the reason I know that is because we can read in Revelation that there will be a people gathered before God's throne, so vast in number that they can't be counted. And I cannot believe for a second that there won't be one person from Ladywell in their midst. Because they're no better or worse than people from Angola or Saudi Arabia or Russia or anywhere else. God has not failed. He has never failed. And so we can be absolutely confident he will be faithful to us in preserving us in our faith, but will be faithful in the salvation of a sinful people for his own glory, to point to his goodness. God has chosen a people for service to point to his rule. We find in verses 11 through to 16, Paul moving on and then asking another uh, question. He, he asks questions again and again. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And again, his answer is, by no means. No. What he means when he says, did they stumble that they might fall, is, have they fallen away completely? Have have they stumbled and now just been lost irrevocably forever and God has just moved on? So the whole project that God had with Israel has just come to a complete end. And Paul's point is, again, no. They have been chosen. They will be saved to serve God to demonstrate Christ's rule. He's just said in verses 7 through to 10 that they have been given a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that would not hear. God has allowed their hearts to be hardened whilst opening the eyes of others like Paul and the early believers in the church. And now he's saying that those believers, Paul and those others, and even the Gentiles, are to live lives of service to Christ to point to how good Jesus is. To point to what living under the rule of the Messiah is like in order that it might go back to the Jews and they might see what it is they're missing. So, verses 11 through to 16. God has, through the trespass of Israel, brought salvation to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, there's a couple of things going on here. What he's talking about first is that the Christians at the time, that the Gentiles and those believing Jews live lives that honor God. This is why he repeatedly says in all of his other letters, you've got to live lives worthy of the gospel. You've got to work out your faith with fear and trembling. You've got to live in a way that demonstrates that Jesus means something to you in your life, not just because it will keep God happy. You're not doing it to appease God although it will make God happy when you do that. We're doing this as a means of our worship to God, as a means of our growth in discipleship, but also as a means of witness to the world, not least of which is the Jews. They should recognize all the blessings they have been uh, promised by God and how they are not in receipt of them at this point in time. They're just not receiving the fullness of all these promises. They're struggling constantly, every moment of their lives, for their mere existence. This is not the promised blessing that the Old Testament speaks so much of. That every man will sit under his vine or his olive tree in his own place, in his own home, and know peace and prosperity. That's not what they're experiencing. But Paul says, when those men and women look at the church, they should see us living in light of the promised blessings of God, so much so that they say, hang on a minute, how does that work? How do they have those things that we ought to be in receipt of? And so, they are challenged. They're accosted by the gospel as the means of entry into those blessings, and so seek it themselves. Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He's saying, in my life, I'm not called to go to the Jews, although I am a Jew. And in many ways, you wonder why God sent him to the Gentiles when he would have been such a powerful witness to the Jews, but God had set other men apart for that ministry. Paul had been sent to the Gentiles, I think, so that he could explain where all of this belief comes from. Because who is more qualified than a Pharisee like Paul to explain the Old Testament and say, this is why you as a Gentile who don't believe any of that ought to, because of Jesus. But he says, I'm making much of my ministry amongst the Jews so that they see what I'm doing, hear what I'm saying, and so seek the Savior I'm serving. Because if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, think how much blessing would come as a result of a huge number of Jewish men and women who have all of that grounding in God's promises, in the old covenant, being brought into the church and being able to serve across the world with all of that understanding, with all of that knowledge, with all of that devotion. Who is more devoted in the world today to God than than Jews As we thought last time in the last chapter, they do so not according to knowledge. They're going the wrong way, but you can't question their devotion. Even Jews who say they don't believe in God still seek to live in some level of obedience with the old covenant. It's bizarre. What could God do with people like that if he brought them in? The sky's the limit. And so Paul says what we want to do is show them what it is to live under the rule of Christ, what it is to be in receipt of the blessings of God. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 is all about. This is what Revelation 1 to 3 and then 21 and 22 are all about, that God will bring the whole world in submission under the feet of Jesus, and we will all live under his rule, and it will be wonderful. There will be nothing like it. It will be amazing. And today, in the church, we are to embody some of that wonderful future reality. So this speaks to the Jewish people of the world, but it speaks also to the Gentile people of the world, that they look at us and see something that can be had nowhere else. Family, love, care, attention, the worship of God, sacrifice for God for the sake of others in this world, all of that cannot be found anywhere else. And this is the heart and soul of our witness showing people what they can have nowhere else but Christ, so that they might come to him and cast themselves upon him by his grace. God's people haven't been failed by God. He has chosen them to demonstrate his goodness by his grace. He has chosen them for service to point to Christ's ruin. He has chosen them for glory to point to God's purposes in verses 17 to 24. We find in the end, this is what all people are saved for, for the glory of God. And some branches in the tree of the family of God have had to be broken off over time because they haven't been saved faithful. They haven't been putting forth fruit. And one of the things in the ancient world that olive growers would do if they had an olive tree which had spent decades growing but wasn't putting out any fruit was instead of just hacking the thing down and then planting something else that would take 20 years to grow to maturity is that you cut off a lot of the branches and then you take branches from another wild olive tree which still has a lot of vigor and life and puts out fruit and you graft them into the established one. So the slightly weedier, wild olive that was growing out of control might reinvigorate the cultivated olive with new life and might cause the whole thing to flower and to fruit. And that's exactly what God is doing with his people, with, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago, the congregation, the family of God. It's confusing for us to talk about the relationship between Israel and the church because we're talking about the relationship between God's chosen people and a people who have been called by God, not all of whom are chosen. And that's exactly the difficulty Paul's addressing. All those Israelites who do not know God, who are going to their deaths not knowing God, but believing they do, and the struggle that we have relating them to the church. When we say the people of God, what do we mean? We mean the people that God has set apart and saved by his grace from the old covenant and from the new, the chosen family of God. God has chosen a people to point to his glory in his purposes in the world. It's astonishing, isn't it, that God would set up Israel with all of those promises, would walk with them for so many centuries, for millennia. Christ would come And yet it would seem like failure has come because the vast majority of his own people reject him. And yet, through their rejection, God saves a vast untold number of Gentile people who know nothing about all of that heritage. And then, as a result of their salvation, his covenant people, his old covenant people, receive those blessings as they realize what they have missed and cast themselves upon Christ and so are adopted into God's family. Is that not amazing that God would have the ingenuity, the power, the wisdom to accomplish all of that? We could never have done that in a million years if we tried. And yet God is able to do this in demonstration of his own power and wisdom, but it's all for his own glory. He's demonstrating that there is no salvation in any other than him, because he is the source of life. He is the source of light in the world his people reflect that, but they are not where it comes from. He alone saves. He alone is glorious. He alone is perfect and holy and pure and righteousness and righteous. And as he saves people for himself, they reflect his glory back to him, which is why he made us in the first place. And if God can do this by grafting wild olive branches, you and I, into a cultivated olive tree, this whole body of of people that have existed from the time of Abraham right the way through to today, then he can certainly graft in any one of his choosing, even some of those cultivated branches that have previously been broken off. It's not a problem for God. God's able to do whatever he wants, but he has revitalized this tree in an astonishing way so that he might be glorified by the fruit that it produces whether it comes from a wild branch or a cultivated one. But he says to the Gentiles, don't be proud because you think you're better than the Jews, because God can just as easily break your branch off, no problem. It's not about you. It's not about your worthiness, your ability. It's always, always about him and what he is able to achieve for his own eternal glory. As we seek to be faithful to God, there are many reasons that we might be doubting his goodness, doubting his uh, faithfulness, that we might wonder whether he has failed us or the nation or whether he's just moved on to another people. But Paul says there is no reason for us to doubt. God has not failed. He will not fail you. He will not fail this church in Ladywell. He will not fail his people across the world in Afghanistan or anywhere else. He will not fail those people who sit on all of this heritage of the Old Testament, are still waiting for their Messiah in blindness to the reality he's come 2,000 years ago and they've missed it. He won't fail. He has never failed. (laughs) He has always been saving people for himself and he will continue to do so today. So we can go with confidence into the rest of this day and the rest of this week as individual Christians. God will not fail you because he's never failed you. We can go with confidence that when we share the gospel with our brothers and sisters to encourage them and build them up, that they will be encouraged and built up, even when sometimes we wonder if we have the right words to say. How often have we said that? We go to meet with someone, you think, I just didn't know what to say to them. I had no idea what would bring them comfort, so I just went. But we know that in the going and in the saying of whatever God has said in his word, they will receive strength and comfort. And it may take them a while to see that, but they will. We can go with confidence. We can go with confidence that God will have his kingdom firmly established here and will grow because as we go out into Lady Well or wherever it is that we're going back to after the service is done and we share the gospel, that there are men and women, untold numbers of them, who are just waiting to receive the gospel because God has prepared them before. 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to the God of this age, preserved for God and his glory. We can go with great confidence. God has not failed you and never will. And in the end, we'll always labor for his glory. He has saved you, chosen you by his grace, chosen for you to serve him. And ultimately, he has chosen you for his glory to point to his purposes. So let's go with confidence into this week, whatever this week will hold. And this week will certainly, for many of us, hold great challenges, confident in the God of our salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your goodness. Lord, we give you thanks for your greatness, your justice, your mercy, your love. We confess, Lord, that all too often our feelings overwhelm us, and we perhaps place too much on them. We wonder where you are, how you could have abandoned us, why you could let these circumstances happen, why you aren't saving people around us, but you seem to save people in other places. Lord God, we confess that all too often our emotions cloud what we know to be true, that you have ever been faithful. You will never fail. And so, Lord, we ask that you would conform us not to the pattern of this world, but transform us Lord, through your Word and by your Spirit, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord God, that we may have patience, that we may labor with love, that we may seek to be fruitful Christians regardless of the hardness of the circumstances we face. For in the end, we can be confident that you will always be with us. You will always uphold us, always lift us, always strengthen us, always love us, for you have sent your Son to be our Savior. Lord God, we thank you so much for Christ, and we ask this week that you would have us cast ourselves upon him, for he cares for us. Lord God, have us be confident this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to, in just a moment, come together and share in a time of communion, but before we do, we're going to stand together and be led by our band in singing these well-known words that we are Christians in Christ alone. He has saved us and is leading us. Let's stand together in Christ alone.